Welcome to The Change Lab, a podcast for people who are all about personal development, leaning into their potential and becoming their best self. Just, you know, starting next Monday. I'm your host, Dr. Sasha Hines, and oh, sh- it's Monday. Hello, lab mates. Happy Monday. Happy second week of 2024. I'm still in that new year energy glow. Today on The Change Lab, I'm so pleased to be joined by a very special guest, Catherine Morgan Schaffler. Catherine Schaffler is a psychotherapist, writer and speaker, and former on-site therapist at Google. She earned degrees and trained at UC Berkeley and Columbia University with a postgraduate certification from the Association for Spirituality and Psychotherapy in New York City. Her book, The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power, was released in January of 2023, and it is such a treasure. And in fact, it was recently selected as one of Amazon's best books of 2023. Truly is so great. So if you haven't had the pleasure of reading it, I have no doubt that today's conversation will inspire you to get your hands on a copy or download the audiobook. You can learn more about Catherine and her book at her website, perfectionistguide.com. And I will put the link in the show notes for you guys as well. So I really love her nuanced and original take on perfectionism. And it was such a treat to be able to discuss it with her. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with the wise and wonderful Catherine Morgan Schaffler. I'm so excited to have you here. Your book is so phenomenal. It was honestly excited to be here. Awesome to have you. It's one of those books that I started reading and was like, I couldn't put it down. It was every sentence was yes, yes, yes. So it's having someone articulate so much of the things I think about and consider. And I think I confront frequently with my clients. Yeah. That means so much coming from you because, you know, I was really scared to write this book for the fact that there's been so much in academia about how perfectionism is so toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it certainly is in its unhealthy manifestation, but there's also been so much in the research world about how it can be healthy and adaptive and it's not perfectionistic strivings, which lead us to abandon our well being. It's how we punish ourselves afterwards. And the part that made me nervous was like, how are like academics and my peers going to receive this book? Because it sounds so counterintuitive at first. Mm-hmm. Like, what are you talking about? Perfectionism can be a power. Like, what are you saying? You know? And so I appreciate that coming from you who, I don't know if there's a degree you don't have, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> well, by the way, for the same fear. I think my fear is always like, I mean, it's so funny because it's so vague and so irrational. It's like the academic community is going to pick at my front door. What do you say? Yeah. You misquoted <laughs> no, a, cares. You misquoted a study. I literally up at night at three in the morning, like, did I reference that correctly? I know, so crazy. I know. I know. I know, but it's so important because these researchers are so much of my world. It's like so many of the people I admire are researchers that no, like the average person has not ever heard of, but that spend their lives, you know, often trying to answer just one question. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe don't even end up answering that question, but in the pursuit of that answer, they just create such a wealth of information for the public health community and just like really have shaped the way I think about things. And, you know, it's the kind of first person I think about when I think about a topic is like, what do researchers think about this? What questions are they asking? Mm -hmm. Like, what are they not asking? You know? Well, one of the things I love the way that you frame this is because I think that one of the pitfalls of citing research is that often with research, we're looking at things on average. And of course, nobody is an average. Everybody's uniquely themselves and we can fall somewhere in a spectrum, but we're Mm -hmm. looking at the average over a specific population or participants in a study. So it's a blunt instrument. And what I loved about your book is that you break down perfectionism into five categories. So you're not looking at it as like a monolithic issue. You're looking Mm -hmm. at specifically, there are different subcategories and different types And I thought it was really fascinating and illuminating. And I would actually love you to describe that for the audience. So what are the five different types of perfectionism and how do you define them? Yeah. So this is all coming from The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control, which is a book I wrote because I'm a therapist and I have worked in so many different clinical contexts. Like I worked in a residential treatment center with kids who were severely abused and traumatized such that they had to be taken out of their home and foster care. And now they live on a site guarded by the state, their Mm -hmm. wards of the state. I worked in a rehab. I had a private practice on Wall Street. I worked on site at Google as their therapist. And in all these contexts, perfectionism came up. Mm -hmm. And I was like, how is it coming up in all these contexts if we only think about perfectionism as something that like, quote unquote, high achievers struggle with? And like, it wasn't just showing up behaviorally and like, I want all the pens in a row. It's showing up emotionally. Like these kids want to be perfectly liked. Mm -hmm. Like that is their primary motive when I walk in the room. And then when someone else walks in the room, they seem to have a totally different personality because they're just switching their personality to be liked by the person who just walked in. Like what's motivating that, right? That's obviously like an unhealthy kind of perfectionism. And then there's like so many different kinds, like the way we, th- we want to understand something perfectly. Why did I not get that job? I need a bullet point reason from all these people. Why did you break up with me? We can end our relationship as soon as I know that. Then I can move on. It's right. like all these different ways perfectionism shows up. So I kind of laid all that out and thought about how come I can know how my client in my rehab is going to respond to this. And the person who is, you know, working on Wall Street, why is it that I know they're both going to react the same way to Mm -hmm. this? Like I started to see patterns that didn't have names. I looked into the research. There was no explanation for this stuff. So that's how I came up with the five types of perfectionists. And they are the messy perfectionist. And this is kind of a misnomer because these aren't people who present is like messy all oh, the totally time. I totally identify. Like I read that description. I was like, oh, I identify as that person for sure. <laughs> yeah. So each type has its advantages and liabilities, just like perfectionism in general has its pros and cons. And the advantages to a messy perfectionist are like, they love starting. 
I call them start happy. Like I would say they push through the anxiety of a new beginning, but they don't even experience anxiety of starting something. They're just so enthusiastic. They're superstar idea generators. They could just see possibility everywhere they look, right? And so they take all that energy and they cast a wide net out into the world and they get so much going. Now, the cons to this type is if you're not managing this kind of perfectionism, when you hit the inevitable tedium where you're like, now I have to file a license for my company I just started, like, ugh. Or you're on the fourth date and you're like, never noticed how you really chew pretty loud, huh? (laughs) You know, it's like when the perfection starts to crumble because you brought something into the world and made it real and now it has to change because that's what things that are alive in the world do. When that happens, there's this like real deflation where you're like, oh, this isn't the perfect thing it was before. Now I don't know how to hold it, right? And so messy perfectionists can say yes to a million things without actually committing to anything. And when all of that disintegration happens, they're kind of left with this false narrative of like, Nobody takes me seriously. I can't ever finish anything. All I do is just start. I have 17 billion open tabs in my computer and nothing actually gets done. And that false narrative isn't true. It's just that they need help in the middle of the process. Right. So I'll pull back and say the point of understanding which kind of perfectionist you are is not so that you can like change it. It's just so that you can understand like where you need the most support. Mm -hmm. So the counterpart to the messy perfectionist is the procrastinator perfectionist. And the easiest way to explain this is like, these are people who want the conditions to be perfect before they start. Mm -hmm. I loved this description. I thought this was a really interesting archetype. Yeah. So unlike the messy perfectionist who is obsessed with starting a million things, procrastinator perfectionists feel so much anxiety in the beginning. It feels to them like they're taking a baseball bat to something they love. Because in their head, they're such thoughtful people and they mm-hmm. are so well-prepared that they have already started it in their minds. So they can see it in their minds. So actually starting it isn't starting it for a procrastinated perfectionist. It's like letting it be, like we said, alive out in the world, right? And so that's the pros to this type. So starting is sort of the shattering of the perfect in some way. Starting is the shattering of the perfect because these people are so thoughtful and they prepare so much that they've constructed a whole castle in their minds. Mm-hmm. Like they know, and you know, procrastinator perfectionists are not impulsive, which is such an asset to have. Really um, is. <laughs> yeah. And, but on the con side, of course, it's the same as messy. It's like their preparative measures spill past the point of diminishing returns. Mm-hmm. And like, you're preparing for something that you are well prepared to do. And not actually executing on the thing. So then they also adopt a false narrative of like, I never start, I must not care enough. And what's really interesting about this type is procrastinator perfectionists don't just procrastinate on aversive stuff, like doing your taxes or something. Procrastinator perfectionists can procrastinate on something they deeply want, like Mm -hmm. starting to date after a divorce. Right. Right. Where they're like, I want that to go so well and I'm so excited about it. And I am ready to do it. I want to do it. And their readiness kind of betrays themselves because they don't just start. So you just need help starting. And then once a procrastinator gets started on something, they coast through the rest. They will bring it to completion. They're so good at that stuff, right? Then we have an intense perfectionist. And this perfectionist 
is over-indexed on the outcome, right? So procrastinator perfectionists want the beginning to be perfect. Messy want the middle to be perfect. Intense perfectionists want the end to be perfect. They don't care about the beginning and middle. They want to get to the end. The pros of this type are they have razor sharp focus. Mm -hmm. They will get it done. The cons are if you're not managing this kind of perfectionism, you get it done and the means do not justify the ends or rather you don't care if they do, right? So you get it done at the cost of your own well-being or the well-being of those around you. So an example of this is like a manager who not only hit the goal of Q3, but surpassed it. And guess what? Everyone on your team is quitting right. next quarter because they right. hate working for you. They're miserable. Or the person who's like set the most beautiful table for the holidays, everyone's there on time and the note cards all look great. And everyone's dressed up like you told them they had to be. And nobody talks about anything personal, private. You don't learn anything. It's just a politeness contest. There's no connection. Yeah. You know, so that's like the consequence of, of just focusing on the outcome without thinking about the process. Mm -hmm. Then we have Parisian perfectionists. And I, oh, named I love this, this name. I love this name. Yeah. Yeah. I named it after sort of the aesthetic of French women who have this really beautiful, understated, less is more, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication kind of beauty aesthetic. Like they don't look like they're trying ever. But behind the scenes, they may be trying a lot, actually. Mm -hmm. And so that speaks to the embarrassment that Parisian perfectionists feel when people know how hard they try. These people want to be effortlessly cool. They want to just like communicate and signal to you like, I don't care if you like me. I don't care if you like this. I don't care if whatever. Meanwhile, they like want all the likes on their posts. They want the laughs at their jokes. They want the this, they want the that. And Parisian perfectionists, it's an oversimplification, but the best way to describe it is like, they want to be perfectly liked. Mm -hmm. Every perfectionist is seeking an ideal. Parisian perfectionist ideal is ideal connection. So I want to perfectly be liked. I want to perfectly understand myself. This can show up in the idea of wanting to perfectly love yourself and love your body all the time. That's yep, like a very... Yep dangerous iteration that's quite popular in commercial wellness right now. So the advantages to this type are like Parisian perfectionists are so inclusive. They're naturally warm. You do not have to explain the importance of relationships to a Parisian perfectionist. With an intense perfectionist, you have to pull them aside and be like, if you continue acting like this, and acting like relationships don't matter and only the outcome matters, everyone's going to quit or this person's going to leave you or your kid is going to not speak to you anymore. Right. You have to explain that. You don't have to explain that to a Parisian perfectionist. But the cons are like, if you don't have your eye on this, you know, sometimes we try to take shortcuts to connection, which look like some really dangerous people pleasing where not only do we not give ourselves a chance to connect to the other person because we're not actually being our authentic selves, we also abandon ourselves. Yeah. So now we're like, oh, for two, you know? Oh yeah. By the way, I think this is so interesting because I had this insight over the last few years of, you know, there's all this rhetoric about being authentic, be yourself, you do you, be authentic, be yourself. And what the reality, it sounds so badass online. All of those mm -hmm. messages sound so badass, like, yes, I'm going to be my authentic self. And it's sort of this message of empowering message. But the reality is like, if I'm actually going to be myself, what that actually means is I have to tell people that my feelings were hurt. 
And I have to tell people that I'm feeling fragile or I'm feeling vulnerable. And that is 100% the part of the authenticity. Like, I don't want to share, right? So I'm happy to (laughs) show the badass side. But when we're really talking about being authentic in interpersonal relationships, so often it's not this kind of exciting, empowering part. It's like, oh, hi, you want to see that I'm really human and fragile (laughs) and that I'm feeling my feelings are really hurt and I'm starting to cry over the dumbest thing and I'm embarrassed about it, right? Like that's authentic. Anyway, it's so funny because so often with my clients, I'm like, that's the part you're not going to (laughs) like. Yeah. And it's the part that not everyone gets to see. Sometimes authenticity is understanding how much of a private person you are or how oh, much totally. you're not. I mean, I'm meaning this and with like your very core people. I'm not yeah, suggesting you're sharing core people. this. Yeah, 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 100%. Completely. I know that part is so hard. It's like um, telling my husband, like my feelings are hurt. Like that's hard. That's, but that's yeah. my authentic self. I don't, I don't want to show that side. Yeah, yeah. Especially in real time. It's like, give me a week and then I can tell you all the things that I felt. But in real time, like, oh, it's like a raw nerve to right. say like, I'm scared right now. Totally. Just even those three words, four words, whatever. It's just the challenge is to do this in real time and like really put yourself out there to someone whom, to your point, is worthy of hearing what's actually going on in your totally. internal world. Right. Even without it the being the safest packaged. people, right? Yes, like exactly. Our best friends, whatever. It's still hard. So it anyone is. who's listening, who's having a hard time doing that, and maybe like it doesn't have to be in real time. Maybe it could be two hours later. You could be like that dinner that we just had that you have now driven home from. And you're, you know, I was like, that was me being scared or, or something, you know, exactly. like the pressure on ourselves to do all of this, like game changing stuff in real time is, is pretty intense. And then, okay. So there's one more perfectionist. So the classic perfectionists are like the closest to the archetype of perfectionists that we tend to think of. So the advantages to this type is these are people who do what they say they're going to do when they say they would do it in the way they said they would do it. They're highly reliable. They naturally just infuse structure into everywhere they go. The cons to this type is that their like working style or engagement style isn't necessarily collaborative (laughs) in in nature. Mm -hmm. So there can be like a transactional quality to being around these people where you're like, I know that they care, they're doing all this work, but like, I don't feel them in the room with me or on their end, they can sometimes feel taken for granted. Like, because everyone's like, oh, well, she'll plan the vacation. Like she'll make the deck. She'll just, she likes doing that stuff. Right. And whether you like it or not, that doesn't mean that it's not work. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean that you don't want acknowledgement and recognition for the effort and energy that you put into that work. Oh my goodness, so much. It takes so much work. The logistical wrangling takes so much work. Yeah. I love this so much because I think there's so much, the nuance here with each one. And I'm sure those of you that listening, you can really identify. There's probably a few that you identify with some sort of amalgam of a couple that sort of resonate. Why do you think, why is perfectionism a female issue. Yeah. It's a really gendered term. I think of perfectionism as an innate human impulse, right? It's this incredible cognitive capacities unique to our species that we can see our reality, what's going on in front of us. And then we can envision a better reality. And perfectionists are people who see that gap between reality and the ideal, and they feel an active compulsion 
to bridge the gap. Whereas like, if you think of an idealist, for example, they see the gap too. And they're like, wouldn't it be nice if we could like stop world hunger? A perfectionist sees that and is like, wouldn't it be nice if we could stop world hunger? Like, what am I going to do about this? Mm -hmm. Like, I got to do something and they can't let it go, which is often a point to perfectionists that are told that's how we pathologize part of this. It's like, well, you can't let it go. So it must be unhealthy. It's like, no, we have a lot of compulsory traits as humans. We need to make art. We need to touch. We need to tell stories. Like we need also to create newer, improved versions of reality. Like it's part of the energy that makes the world go round. And so I think of it as a power. It's really interesting to plug it into culture because it originally was presented in psychological research as this universal innate thing that's healthy in the same way love is healthy, that doesn't mean there aren't toxic iterations of love and abusive sure. relationships if that stuff doesn't have boundaries around it. Currently, we are using perfectionist as a placeholder to describe women who are ambitious and power-seeking. Mm-hmm. And these placeholders switch. There's, you know, there's that quote of history doesn't repeat itself perfectly, but it always rhymes. Oh, I've it's never like, heard that, but I love it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we were doing this a second ago with the word bossy, right? Mm-hmm. Which is a, is a way that we reprimand girls who are showing themselves like in an assertive way. We say, don't be so bossy. Don't be so sassy. Yeah, Those are not descriptors that we typically deliver to boys. And to answer your question, we live in a misogynist culture. The way that culture perpetuates gender performance expectations of this is how you should act as a boy man, this is how you should act as a girl woman, is that we do that implicitly. Meaning we don't sit girls down in the classroom and say, okay, so we don't value you as much as the boys in this culture. We don't value your ideas as much, but we do value the way that you look. So think about that for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. and like, do be performative in these ways. Mm-hmm. Instead, we kind of nestle it into these everyday interactions, right? So resting bitch face is a good example of this. There is no resting jerk face. Right. Because what we're doing with the power of that language is we're saying women are expected to be smiling, pleasing, palatable at all times. So if you just have a normal facial expression, you're being a bitch. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, let's let women on the joke. And so we can say it so we don't even notice that we're perpetuating this gender expectation. There are all these words that exist for women that don't exist for men. Strong-minded is another one. We don't look at a man who expresses himself assertively and say, well, look out for him. He's a strong-minded man, that one. He's uh, spicy. You know, it's like interesting. Yeah. That, that quality gains a superfluous descriptor when you're describing men because men are supposed to be strong-minded. They're supposed to stay claim to their ideas mm-hmm. and and dare they share them. You know what I mean? And and there's so many, you know, perfectionist is what we call a woman who has a very clear vision of what she wants and who seeks it out, right? Who doesn't hide her ambition or her vision. What we call men who are power seeking is alpha males. But women get the like, oh, you're, you're being power hungry. You're being a perfectionist. You got to like, be okay with less. Find some gratitude. Right. Or for a man, it's a visionary, right? Someone's a visionary and they're executing on their vision. And for right. a, a woman, it's more sort of cast in this perhaps overly controlling, overly rigid 
in a way that right. is not to be applauded. Right. Well, what's interesting about that is that when women do express perfectionistic qualities in realms that are archetypal homemaker interests, right? So think of a Martha Stewart. Yeah, I love this. Kondo. I thought that was so interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but when you mentioned it, yeah, explain this because I thought that was an interesting observation. Yeah. So nobody looks at Martha Stewart and Marie Kondo and says, you know, you're being a really perfectionist about this. Like you gotta let loose. Don't sweat the small stuff. Like da-da. they're like, oh, this is great. And then, and we monetize it and celebrate it and syndicate it. And that's because they are being ambitious and particular about things that are acceptable for women to be ambitious about, which is like a brunch in a pinch or tidying up mm-hmm. or wedding palettes that pop, right? When you get a Serena Williams who asserts herself on you know, the court and draws attention to herself with outfits and things that she says and the ways that she engages, like she is literally penalized mm-hmm. with losing games and doing things like that in a way that men are not. I use this example of a tennis player who called an umpire an abortion to no penalty and won the game. Whereas like we all remember Serena Williams' infamous 2018 match where she just asserted herself and she lost a point and lost that match and lost the game. And so there are all these examples of how we reward women. And we find John McEnroe's bad behavior amusing. Yeah, yeah. And we're just trying to push women in their place, which we feel in this culture is, you know, a place of domesticity. You know, one of the things that I, with my clients I see is women will be reluctant to, they want to work on weight loss, which I have no issue with because it's not about the weight loss. It's never about the thing. That's just the container, but it's about all of the beliefs around it that are keeping them stuck and what are those and can we break through them to a higher level of adult development? It's just adult developmental growth and it can it can be in any container. You know, it could be trying to up-level to a new job. It could be, you know, trying to get unstuck in a particular area. So like, it's not the what of it, it's the how of it. So, but it's so interesting because when people come to me with weight loss for women, there's so much caveat and there's so much, well, I know I should love my body and I, I feel like uncomfortable saying this, but I really want to lose, you know, 15 pounds, but I, you know, there's so much apprehension about just bringing this up as a topic because they don't want to be seen as vain or they don't want to be Mm anti-feminist or they don't want to be in some way part of the problem, this cultural problem of too much pressure on women, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, okay, but how do you feel? <laughs> and they're like, well, I feel yeah, like crap. Yeah. I'm like, I don't care about any of that stuff. I care about you. And if you are getting to a point where you're losing weight or the goal weight you have is unsustainable, it's too hard, it doesn't actually work for your body, that's a whole different topic. And then we can address mm-hmm. that when we get there. But you mm-hmm. know, like I trust that you know what's going on with your body. I trust that you are the expert on how you feel. Men, never. I never have this. They're like, I want to lose weight. What are we doing? Let's do it no drama, right? right? Because there's no cultural angst around that for them. It's just kind of a math problem. And there may be uh, mindset stuff around it that they need to work on, but it's less fraught. But for women, it's like, I got to break through this whole barrier just to get there because they have to sort of let go of all of this. I'm a bad person because I want to feel better in my body. It's like, oh my goodness gracious. 
And we've done this to ourselves. Like women have done this to women. You know, we do all live in culture and so we've all participated and we'll continue to participate because we can't extract ourselves from culture. I mean, my hope is always that women can take the locus of dysfunction of what's happening around body image stuff and externalize it instead of like internalizing it. So externalizing it is like understanding that you have all that noise and static because you live in a culture which is telling you that the important thing is first for you to seem healthy. If you want to be healthy too, that's great. But nobody really cares as long as you look thin. <laughs> so true. Like nobody cares what's happening behind the scenes. And that's yeah. why this idea of being balanced and caring a little, but not too much. And da, da, da. I have a whole chapter in the Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control about like how I do not know one balanced woman. Balance is like an urban myth, right? Yeah. And it's just not real. Like balance is it's just an idea. It's not a real thing to complete. And so the idea of like externalizing that static that we all feel and we will continue to feel like the difference of externalizing it is like, oh, the call's not coming from inside the house. Like I am actually safe in my body if I allow myself to feel pleasure. Mm-hmm. in my life. If mm-hmm. I allow myself to take pleasure in the foods that I eat. And I feel quite strongly that it's very hard to engage in pleasure when the words on the marquee are all about restriction. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Right. So if it's like, I can't eat A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and that's the most important thing. And then pleasure is even secondary. I mean, mostly it's not even in the mix. It's like, well, if I just let myself eat what I wanted, I would just eat the whole pantry and I would do this and I would do that. And it's like, we as women don't know how to feel pleasure. We don't know how to feel good in our body because that hasn't ever been communicated to us as like, hey, if you can master that as the first thing, as the primary thing of how do you feel? What do you desire? What do you want? If you can lead with that, the rest of the stuff Mm self-corrects because you don't actually want to eat the whole pantry and the whole whatever. You're eating that stuff because you're numbing yourself to the feeling of like not living a life that is reflective of you or just being so confused and not knowing like how to place that confusion. and, And we use food to numb out. And that comes from somewhere. Like that's the echo of hysteria of like, well, women will go crazy if you leave them to their own devices. Right. You know, and of course that's not true. This is all just like the misogynist stuff that comes up. Right. It's like just this feeling of like, you're allowed to strive. You know that, right? And in fact, most of people's problems, in my opinion, are arrested development. They're not pathology. It's a lack of growth. So let's do the growth. It's not going to be linear and it's, it's going to be messy and there's going to be plateaus and there's going to be quantum leaps and then there's going to be setbacks and all the above. But that's the active work of being a human is in that growth. And I think that, you know, women feel a little bit, I mean, I'm speaking so generally, so forgive me, but I see this sort of middle age plateau or the sort of middle age landscape of like, okay, I've, I've checked all the boxes. What now And I would say, you know, this is the age at which I'm like, you hit your 40s. It's like, you need a bigger imagination for your life. You need a way Mm. bigger imagination than what is being offered to you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You said it. Yeah. Because what's being offered is like a half item menu 
Yeah. Of, I, uh, I want a more organized mudroom. I'm like, oh my Lord, have mercy. By the way, I wanted a more organized mudroom too. Don't get me wrong. But that's just not what I want, you know, in yeah, my obituary. Yeah, no, I hear you. <laughs> I hear you. And, you know, it's just we're out of practice of asking ourselves, like, what do I want? And one of the ways that I I try to ask myself this, and, and sometimes I ask is my clients, is like, because this just helps leapfrog over all the cultural stuff that like nobody can avoid, right? It's yeah, like, exactly. Imagine everyone you love and care about and other strangers in the whole world. Like everyone is taken care of, happy and thriving. Now, what do you want? And it's like deer in headlights. Like, I don't know. And you don't not know because you're doing something wrong. You don't know because you're out of practice of asking yourself that. Yeah. Right. It's like, it's like if someone asked you about a trip you went on in, you know, sophomore year of college to Greece and they were like, what's your favorite restaurant there? And you're like, uh, I don't know. I forgot. Like, I have no idea. I don't even remember what I did on that trip. But it's like, if you gave yourself a second, you're like, okay, wait, what did we do? Where did we go? Who was I with? Like the answers come to you. It's just not instantaneously. I just, yeah, I think exactly what you said. I just, for women, it's this idea of like, you guys, you have permission to go after whatever it is that you want. And if you want to lose 15 pounds or you want to get a new job or you want to go back to school or, you know, you want to get fit in your forties, like, I don't care what it is that you want, whatever that desire in you that you want, go for it, go for it. Like, let's stop putting restrictions on like, well, this is valid. This is not, this is a valid goal. This is not a valid goal. This is a worthy goal. This is not, this is a, you know, a noble endeavor and this is vain and frivolous. I'm like, who decides that except for you? You even know what you want. Like if you're listening to this and you don't know what you want, that's okay. Totally. Knowing what you don't want is just as useful as information. And I use the example in my book of like, if someone were, I call this tip of the tongue knowing, like you may not be able to name it, but you would recognize it if someone told you. So it's like, oh, what's that Italian restaurant that we went to last month? And someone says, oh, is it Il Brigante? You're like, no, that wasn't it. Oh, is it Celeste? Not that one either. But like once you recognize that thing right. that you want, if you stay connected to yourself and you allow yourself permission to just not know right now and be open and explore, then once you see it and encounter it, you'll be like, that's what I want. That's it. Yeah. I, there was this, a couple of things in your book that was so interesting. This, what's the relationship between, in your mind, perfectionism and people pleasing? Because there, you know, in the sort of subcategories, there's different sort of varieties of perfectionism as you describe them. And I'm interested in sort of how those two things in your mind relate. Yeah. Well, in healthy perfectionism, we're striving because it makes us feel good and it's Mm -hmm. sort of animating some kind of internal value, right? In unhealthy perfectionism, we're striving because we feel the need to compensate for an inadequacy or a perceived inadequacy that we have, right? So if you take the example of like, I want to look good, you can have that to your point. Like, that's great to have as a goal, right? Like I love picking my outfits and doing my things and, uh, and all of that. There's nothing wrong with wanting to look good. And if you feel internally like this is who I am, I want to animate who I am in the world. I want to look good. I'm alive. I want to just like engage and come to life. And, and one way that I'm going to express that is through the way that I look, the outfits that I wear. That's like 
adaptive right, and healthy. If you are like, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to say at this dinner party. I don't know who this, or I'm I'm not smart enough to date this person. So I better look super hot. Like I got to compensate in some way for something. Yeah. Then you're doing the exact same goal, but you're doing it in a really unhealthy way. So it's like only, you know, and when it comes to people pleasing, I wish this stuff wasn't as nuanced as it is, but the reality is like what you'll hear in commercial wellness is like, you should never care what anyone thinks about you. I don't think that's true or fair. So it's really about like, who am I trying to please? It's about like taking the the generic to the specific, like, why am I trying to please them? And how am I trying to please them? And if you're like, well, I'm trying to please my kids because I want them to be happy And I'm doing that by not going to this poetry class that really makes me feel alive and happy. But, you know, you got to make sacrifices for your kids. It's like, that's something to look at, Mm -hmm. you know, like any level of martyrdom in any, any amount is a good place to troubleshoot a lot of this stuff, including people pleasing. It's like, it's okay that you want people around you to be pleased by you and feel good in your presence. What's not okay is that that's your primary objective. Let that be a secondary objective. Well, that's why I loved your book because I think, you know, without saying it, you're really describing, and I think this is, as you say, it's the nuance of it, but there's nothing inherently wrong in perfectionism or people-pleasing. They're both adaptive, healthy, very human behaviors, and Mm -hmm. they're necessary, actually, for us to thrive and survive as a species. But there's ways that it gets expressed at different developmental stages. So if you are stuck in a socialized mindset where your entire sense of self is externalized, so I only I only know who I am based on what you think of me. How am I doing? You know, you're taking everyone's temperature, like, how am I doing, guys? Who am I? Because you're looking at everyone to reflect yourself. It can come in sort of some perhaps maladaptive and unhealthy forms, the perfectionism, the people pleasing, because it's so externally oriented. But if you've already worked through that developmental stage, you've internalized the lesson of like, my behavior matters. I impact other people by what I do. I really want to be a part of a society and a community and that's healthy. And I see myself as a part, a cog in a wheel of a larger society, but I've evolved beyond this developmental stage. And I now see my sense of self as more internalized. So now the threat of the loss of the relationship being rejected or unliked is now something that I can see as an object. I don't feel you know, constrained by that. I don't feel like it has me by the neck. Like I'm going to die if someone doesn't like me. I can recognize like, okay, this person, you know, they're not a fan and they're allowed to have that opinion. I'm like mildly hurt and it doesn't feel amazing, but I can handle it. And I'm still going to move in the direction that's aligned with my values. It's not going to affect how I show up, right? I'm still going to do what I'm going to do. And then we're really showing up in the world from a self-authored place where you can still be perfectionistic and you can still be people pleasing, but it's coming from a place where you're like, yeah, because this is who I am. And I also know how to say no. And I also have boundaries. I'm not doing it so that you like me or that you approve of me. I'm doing it because it's who I am. Right. And this is why I think that so much of pop psychology stuff gets so messy is we don't account for the stage. We don't account for someone's developmental growth. So we're talking about people pleasing that we need to evolve out of as if it's one thing. And I think you handle that so well in your book, by the way. I was like, thank you. Well, the the book is based on like a request slash demand for the reader, which is like, can you assume 
even for 30 seconds, that nothing is wrong with you. Can we just start from that place? Yeah. And a big part of my work really emphasizes the fluidity of like mental health and knowing that stuff and like stages and all of those things. It's like, it comes and goes, right? And so I wish that being healthy was just, you know, a coordinate in space that you arrive at, you know, plant a flag in and you send postcards to everyone else. Like, Hey, it's can't wait for you to get here. Like, that's not how it works. That's not how mental health works. Like everyone who reads the book is always like, wait, am I an adaptive or before they read the book anyway, am I, Mm -hmm. am I healthy perfectionist or not healthy? Like Mm -hmm. what is the list of the healthy things and the Mm -hmm. good things? What's the list of the bad things? And I'm like, let me kill the suspense you're both, I'm both. We are all healthy and unhealthy depending on the season of our life, like whether we slept that week, whether we're hungry, hot, tired, whether we just had a huge financial crisis, whether someone that we love is just going through a breakup and let's say it's our kid and we don't know how to handle that. It's stressing us out or, you know, life is not static Mm -hmm. and things change and we intellectually concede to that knowing. We know that. When we're in it, like I'll give you an example. I know that my self-worth, like I am mostly connected to my self-worth. My definition of self-worth is understanding that I am always, no matter what I'm doing or how I'm fucking up or how great I'm performing, that I am always worthy of love, dignity, joy, freedom, and connection, Mm -hmm. right? So those things are not earned, in my opinion. They're birthrights. Every human being, when they're born, deserves dignity because they're a human being. Every human being deserves love, connection, freedom. You don't earn your freedom. You don't need, and, and I'm not here to be like, we should all just shower each other with all the love. Like, I think you earn respect, for example. Mm-hmm. Dignity and respect are very different to me. Dignity is you're a human being and I'm going to treat you like a human being. Right. So I was walking in Midtown and there was a homeless person sitting on the sidewalk and someone from three stories up in the winter poured a bucket of water so that it hit that person and the person would get up and move. Like that's not treating a person like a human being. That's, That's not acting with dignity. Now, I don't have to respect everybody. People earn my respect. The people who DM me every time I post something on Instagram, like these like sketchy guys or maybe they're Instagram robots or I don't know what's going on and have like some very gross comments to say, like, I'm not going to respect those men. Are you kidding me? Like respect is earned. Like a lot of stuff, most stuff is earned in this life. Some stuff is not, that's not negotiable. So I understand all that stuff about my self-worth and I understand that I'm worthy. And at the same time, I have real pain points. Like in the pandemic, when my daughter, who's really little at the time, she was three, was going back to school. They were doing this like phase in where you pick up your kid at 10.15 and these five kids come at 10.15 and the next kids come at 10.30. They're trying to batch it so everyone is not together. They're doing it outside in the street. And like, I don't know why, Sasha, but every time I'd ever watch a movie and there's like the kid waiting on a bench because their parent didn't pick them up mm-hmm. and their little feet are dangling and don't even reach the bottom. I'm always like, that is my nightmare. I mean, obviously it's not like a real nightmare. There are worse things in life, but I'm like, I never want to, my kid waiting on me. Mm-hmm. I know in my mind, it's okay for kids to wait and they'll learn and, and and like, it's okay for me to make a mistake and all that stuff. But still, it's just like one of those things. So I get the call from the school, like, you're not here and Abby's waiting for you. So could you come? 
And oh, that by the way, it is the isn't that the worst call? You just it's the worst. Like I just someone just like, took an anvil to your heart. I also was trying so hard. I was like, okay, I'm going to pick her up at this time and and be productive all morning, and I have an hour to do all whatever. Anyway, so I go to pick her up. Right, this is an embarrassing story for me to tell. And this happened while I was writing the book, by the way. <laughs> by the way, of course it did. Up. Of course it did. You needed... Uh, After perfect. polishing off my uh, chapter on how we should all remember our self-worth, I go to pick up my three-year-old and she's sitting with five junior teachers or something, like the people who help the kids stand in the street because you can't go into the building because it's a pandemic. And they're all like 21, 22. They don't care, right? Like they're thinking about where they're going to like go out and get wasted that night or whatever they're thinking about. and. I am just like a walking ball of shame. Mm, gosh, like been there. Just just like flooded with this like you should have known like this was the only thing that they asked you to do was to pick her up on time. Now look at her. She's sitting there. She's waiting. She's confused. She's scared. She doesn't know these people. Blah, blah, blah. A whole story is going on in my head. And my daughter looks up at me and says, why were all the other mommies here, but you weren't here? Mm-hmm. And she's asking me earnestly. She's just like, what's going on? And the other five adults hear her ask me that. Again, they don't care. They're not like, well, let's see how Catherine handles this By the way, because they deal with this every single day. Right. They do with it. They don't care. (laughs) But they do. They do, right? They have a mom who's running late or a caregiver who something happened. Like, this is not an aberration for them. Right, right. And I just, um, and so I told my daughter a lie which was that I had to invent this really yummy thing that I knew you would love. And that's how she thinks fruit roll-ups were made. (laughs) And I told her since then, you know, just so you know, Abby, mommy didn't really invent fruit roll-ups. I was just so embarrassed in that moment. I didn't know what else to say. So I lied. And I didn't want you to be mad at me just to like model for her that like even grownups do that sometimes. And it's, yeah. it feels so stupid in the moment. And so like, this is so unnecessary. 98 out of a hundred days a year, I can remember that. But if you catch me on those other two days, like who knows what, like sometimes perfect storms are happening in our life. Now, I remember that moment. Like I didn't sleep in the pandemic. I was scared for her to get COVID. She has respiratory issues and is on a nebulizer all the time. So I'm mm-hmm. like... I don't know what's going on. This was before vaccines. Like I was overwhelmed. Like I didn't know how to write my first book, all that stuff. And it just came together. And I looked at my own daughter and like lied about this thing because I just felt like if she knew that I was really just late, like I don't know what I thought would happen, you know, but like the breakaway from your self-worth can happen in an instant. It's like you're at a meeting and everyone laughs and you're like, wait a minute, are they laughing with me or at me? Yeah. Or someone says something and you, and you don't know exactly what they mean or, or you get feedback and it's not good. And you're suddenly just like drifting away in that way that I did in that moment on that sidewalk in New York where I was just like out of body, you know? But it's also, I think, you know, it's an indicator too of kind of what your hot points are as a perfectionist, the things that matter to you, the things that are going to activate you, being punctual, being there, being reliable. I mean, I imagine, is that how you identify yourself as more of sort of a classic perfectionist? It's not, but it's a great point that you're making because I do like the thing that's so important to me now that my daughter is really young is like, I want to physically be present Mm -hmm. with her a lot. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, you know, I want to be like the best mom that I can be. And 
sometimes I really have to ask myself a question that I ask the reader to ask themselves in the book, which clearly we write the books we we most need ourselves, right? It's like, that's the thing that they say about writing books, which is that like, what's the difference between your best and perfect? Because something I hear all the time is like, no, no, no. I know perfect doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. I just want to do my best. I'm like, okay, but what does best mean to you right now? What does that look like? Does that look like you don't make a mistake that you never are late picking up your daughter and you don't get those calls from your school? Is that your best or is that perfect? Because I can easily conflate the two when it comes to my parenting. Mm -hmm. I mean, so relatable. I picked up my son when we were living in New York for, you know, he had those, they had their birthdays at school. You go and you celebrate their birthday. And Mm -hmm. I was writing my dissertation. I was totally overwhelmed. I had two kids below the age of, how old were they? Four? Maybe my son was 25. And I was in the midst of writing my dissertation. I was teaching at Penn. I, I was just, by the way, hello, messy perfectionist. Like I'd said yes to way too many things and Mm -hmm. I was so overwhelmed. I was sick and I'm going to celebrate my son's birthday at school, but I get an email. I like lost my phone. It was like one of those mornings and I had, was very not feeling well. I had a sinus infection and I get a text or an email from the school email and saying, by the way, it's your son's birthday. And then it's listing the things I need to bring. And I was like, wait, what? You know, it's like the snacks, the photographs, the this, the this, the this, right? Like all these things. So I'm running to get the nut-free cupcakes and trying to get everything so I can run to go celebrate his birthday at school. And I arrive in his classroom and these guys are all in preschool and they're so deliciously cute. And I, yeah. you know, bring a book to read and all of that. And um, I walk into the classroom and the teacher looks at me and she says, oh, great, we're so glad you're here. And do you have the photos? Do you have the photos that we can pass around the class? And I'd forgotten the photos. And I start bawling. I mean, I (laughs) I started sobbing and the teacher's like, oh, oh, okay. Oh, um, all right. Um, She's like rubbing my back, trying to calm me down. And what really set me off was that I felt so bad that I let my kid down, right? Like he had been so looking forward to it. It's his special day and I blew it, right? Because I had other stuff that I was preoccupied with and I blew it. Like this is what's in my mind. Like I right, messed right. it up. Meanwhile, your kid's just like, yes, cupcakes with sprinkles on them. Totally. And care. actually, and that's what unglued me was that I look at my kid and he gives me this smile that was like, my mom's here. I mean, it like makes me tear up just thinking about it. His face was so just electric with joy because I was in, I had walked into the classroom and it's such a fun thing for a little preschooler when mommy shows up. And it was like how much he loved me, despite the fact that I felt like complete failure. And I, I lost it. I mean, like I just started bawling and the teacher's like, okay, okay. Let's go out into the hallway and like take some deep breaths. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so embarrassed. I'm so embarrassed. I just had a moment. And then I'm reading to the kids and my face is red with tears and they all could care less. And it was just such a moment of, for me, of recognizing like the things that I'm obsessing about and preoccupied with to feel good as a parent, that I'm doing my best. I'm trying hard. I'm a try hard. And my son doesn't care. He just wanted me there. And, and it was just of like, course, right? Of course. And the and same like, thing is for your daughter. There was no malicious intent in her question. It was merely a like, hey, by the way, what's going on? Right? Yeah. She's like, this is weird. Huh. Right. Interesting. Like she probably was playing games, got all the attention from the five people. But that's what I mean when I say like mental health. Like if someone were to say, 
you know, what would really upset me or bother me was if a therapist or a coach or whatever were to say like, let's get you, Sasha, to a place where you don't have those kinds of reactions anymore. And like, look, there's a case to be made for, we want to live in the space of awareness and being responsive instead of just reactive as much as we can. But there is no inoculating any human being from forgetting what we know. It's like we all encounter that amnesia of like, I know I'm worthy. I know people love me. I know I'm not alone. I know all these things. And guess what? Like you'll forget them. And in those moments that you forget them, it's like build your story from the place where you remember, not from the place where you forgot. Totally. Like those are the moments that we kind of ruminate and remember those those moments as opposed to the 99.9% of the time that you are waiting there for your daughter with open arms when she's leaving school. Exactly. Yeah. And so mental health is like, and perfectionism and all of those things, like we will feel it in waves. And mm-hmm. I think we're all just taking turns, like hurting and helping. And then this person's hurting. So I'm going to help you. I'm hurting now. You're going to help me. We're both hurting. We're going to help each other by just being honest about that. Like nobody is like just flying in sacred line with the moon. Like that's not happening anywhere. Like the healthiest person has like breakdowns. The healthiest person doesn't know what to do with their anger. Sometimes like I learned this lesson when I worked at a rehab because so much of sobriety is about counting days and these quantifiable metrics around sort of your healing. And it's a dangerous space to be, right? Because it's like, I tell the story of a woman, Ava, all the stories in my book are like fictionalized, but they're fictionalized version. Well, I just wanted to say the way you said that in your book, the way you introduced that, you said, these are amalgams of amalgams. Every story of my clients is their unique story. It's theirs to tell. So you said something so poetic and so beautiful. And I just, sorry, you just reminded me, but I wanted to say like, I've never heard anyone actually say that. It was such a beautiful way of honoring the people that you work with. I just wanted to point that out. Thanks. Yeah. Well, therapy is so private. I never want anyone that I work with to even think, to even have to encounter the thought like, oh, what if Catherine uses this for a book? Mm-hmm. Like, I'm never going to do that. They're not my stories to tell. But the stories that I did tell did have a seed of the dynamic that yes. came up, right? And so the story of Ava was this woman who just wanted to take a hot bath. And that's all she wanted to do. You know what? I'm not even going to tell the whole story because it's so long. And people can read the book, but the point is... By the way, do read the book. It's so excellent. (laughs) The point is that in rehab, it happened all the time where someone would have 57 days sober or they'd been sober for two years or they'd been this, and then they would relapse. Yep. And in the midst of their relapse, they were suddenly just thought of themselves as such a failure because their sense of self-worth was connected to something external. Mm -hmm. I am as worthy as the the amount of days I've been clean. Yeah. Versus I am worthy because I'm worthy and I am still going to strive to stay sober. But in the moments that I can't, I still deserve love. I still deserve connection. I still deserve dignity. I still deserve all of that stuff. And so, you know, what being in that rehab taught me, what the clients that I worked with taught me was that perfectionism is not anyone's problem. It's how you respond to yourself when you make a mistake or veer from what you see as the ideal or perfect reaction that becomes your problem. You can either meet yourself with compassion Mm -hmm. or you can punish yourself. 
And the people in recovery who are actually able to recover are not the people who like came up with the smartest kinds of ways to punish themselves and whip themselves into shape. Like there is no such thing as a smart punishment. That's an oxymoron. Punishments do not work. The people that actually recover are the people who meet themselves with compassion. By the way, that chapter alone is just so valuable and worth reading. It was, I just thought there was so much insight in that chapter on punishment. Thank you. Well, you know, we have punishments as such a through line in our culture and we don't understand that punishment's really different than accountability or discipline or Mm -hmm. rehabilitation or natural consequences unfolding. All of those things that I just said, they work, they help, they're additive. Punishment doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it makes everything worse. Punishment's only job is to create more pain. Punishment's lazy. It just lays pain on whatever's there. And the idea behind that is like, I'm going to whip myself into shape or I'm going to punish you for your own good so you learn. That's not how we learn and grow by making ourselves feel like shit and making other people feel like shit and hurting them. I have a question about this. I wonder, have you noticed, I sometimes see this connection between clients who are very authoritarian, drill sergeant-y, overly critical of themselves and sort of treat themselves in that very punitive, harsh way. And then that ping-ponging to permissiveness where they're like the sweet sirens, like, you're being too hard on yourself. Don't worry about it. You don't have to do anything. Just be, you know, be kind to yourself, which isn't actually kind to yourself, which is like, you're allowed to do whatever thing you know is actually in the long run, really going to hurt, you know, is not in your best interest in the long run. But there's this kind of ping pong between, you know, the drill sergeant and the siren. Meaning ping pong, meaning the same person is- Yeah, the same person will sort of, of exactly. So it's not, Mm -hmm. they'll be like, I'm so hard on myself. But often what I'll find is that that very hard on themselves is also coupled with extremely permissive with themselves too. Yeah, well, I think that that dichotomy can really be very real for people because we're not punishing ourselves because of any other reason than like, we want to do better. We want to be accountable. We want to be good. And it's like, we can see that one strategy is not working. So then we try to like do the opposite, Yeah, which, you know, is to layer on what we think is self-compassion, but is really this permissiveness that you're talking about. You know, when you're being kind to yourself, you can't be kind without being honest. Otherwise you're just Oof. being polite. So hey, hold on. I'm sorry. I'm like, mic drop. Can you say that again for those in the back? <laughs> That's so profound. <laughs> Well, you know, it's true that if you're really being kind to yourself, you're also being honest with yourself. Otherwise, you're just being polite. And there's these myths that if we really trust ourselves, then you're allowed to do whatever you want, whenever you want. No, that's not true. People who trust themselves, trust themselves because they're honest with themselves. The same reason we trust other people, because we know they're going to tell us like it is. And when you're being honest, there are some people that are so toxic for you that you just have to avoid them. You have to figure out how to have a healthy detachment to them in some way. That shows up in people, in work, in places, in substances. Like if you trust yourself, you trust yourself enough to be honest with yourself and kind to yourself about what you can't handle by yourself, but you need a lot of support around. Yeah. Since we're in the Change Lab, I wanted to ask you about in your own life, where have you felt or have you ever felt that sort of one foot on the gas wanting change, one foot on the brake, resisting that same change and that sort of feeling stuck in that miserable hellscape? And and how did you overcome that? I feel it all the time and I'll continue to feel it because I'm a human being 
and, and being a human being is hard. And particularly if you're someone like me who really loves growing and wants to continually evolve, ascend, like is very ambitious, yeah. you're going to encounter stuff that you don't know how to do, versions of yourself that you don't know how to be. Oh, I love you that. know, I mean, when you ask me that example, I'm like, it's like someone lit a box of fireworks in the closet and closed the door. I'm like, where, where do I start? Like yeah, there exactly. are a million examples of that. Like uh, my entire twenties. Yeah. Well, it's, so funny the gas in the I, it's so funny because I, um, you know, in this role of being the person who's the quote unquote expert on change. And meanwhile, so many of the examples I give are like how I'm stuck. And I constantly in my mind, I'm like, is anyone going to listen to this? Because they must be thinking, how the heck can she have any authority to say any of this? Because she clearly <laughs> struggles with her own stuff. But that's the point, isn't it? Is like as we grow, this feeling of you know wanting change and resisting it, being afraid of it, dreading it in some way, is your constant companion. I mean, that is how you feel almost all the time. It's just how you work through it. Right, exactly. So it's not what happens, it's what happens next. So for example, I first met you many years ago because I had decided I want to write a book, right? I'm a psychotherapist. I'm a behind the scenes person. You know, I'm saying all these narratives and at the same time, a part of me is like, well, challenging them, like don't write who you are in stone anywhere. But it's kind of true, right? It's like, I'm not, I I don't like being the center of attention. I love having best friends who love being the center of attention and like going out with those people. Like my internal world is very rich, Sasha. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So by the way, that comes out, you are a beautiful, beautiful writer. It's just a beautiful book to read. Not all nonfiction's like that, but it really is. It's beautiful to read. I appreciate that. So here I am, like, I want to write a book and I don't want to write a book so that 17 of my friends and family will read it. Like, I want to write a book that is going to be published by a publisher, that is going to have a marketing plan. And it makes an impact. The whole thing. So I need to get an agent. So that means I need to start to get on the phone with people and sell myself and say, here's why you want me to be your client or whatever. I did not know what the fuck I was doing. I didn't know anything about publishing. It's like, think about what you know about brain surgery. Like, that's what I knew about publishing. It's such a black box industry. I didn't have one friend who had written a book. And it's like, you can read all the books you want to. It's like, I could read 17 books on brain surgery. I'm still not going to feel like I know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So in that moment, where I have my foot on the gas because I know what I want. I'm going to do it. Yep. And I also have my foot on the brakes because I'm like, wait, in order to do it, I really have to own my authority and talk about myself in a way that I don't need to sell anyone on why I'm a good therapist. Like my practice was always full because of word of mouth. I did not advertise ever. I never like promoted myself. And I really believe in Seth Godin's philosophy behind this, which is like, when you believe in what you're offering, your marketing is an act of generosity. I love totally that. I agree. Yeah. So I like had that mind frame. I'm like, okay, I believe in what I'm going to do. I want every single person to read my book. I think it's a steal at like how much a book costs versus like what you can get out of it. But I don't know how to actually do this. And mm-hmm. so I looked up like coaches, because this isn't a therapy issue to me as much as it was like a... I need the skill set. I need someone who's going to cleanly, quickly help me identify like, what is that skill set? How can we put my signature on it so that it doesn't just feel like I'm I'm performing? Like, how do I get that done? And your name came up and we connected and it just made me feel, not just feel better, 
and proactive and that's empowering in itself of just yeah. like seeking seeking help and seeking making support. Making like that call for you to be like, okay, I'm doing this. I'm going to get my support team in place. Like that alone creates so much momentum. Right. And it's such a gesture to yourself of like, I'm going to bet on you. Yes. I'm going to invest money in you. I'm going to invest time in you. I'm going to invest people in you. It's like if someone were to come into your house and say, wow, you've got potential. I am going to get you media training and we're going to get you this. And we're going to get, wouldn't you be like, oh my God, finally, this is so great. It's like, no one's going to do that. You have to do it for yourself. Yeah, Cavalry is not coming. You've got to call it in. Yeah. Like you were part of my cavalry. So was like reaching out, you know, cold emailing authors that seemed like they would be nice and being like, can you, can we talk about like the process of this? And like getting books was part of my cavalry. You know, there was so much, like I just made a little moat of support and that didn't awesome. make it easy, yeah. but it made it manageable. Yeah. So like, that's I love that. That's a, that's a quote right there, right? That's what we really, it's like, it's not going to be easy, but it's going to be manageable. You can handle the manageable. Stop trying to make it easy. Yeah. And I remember after, I think we had four sessions together and I remember after just feeling like, you kept saying something to me, which was like, you can do this. And it was like something that was just such a passing comment. People tell me this all the time in therapy. Like, I think I gave them the like lightning rod statement. And that's right. not, that's not what they're attached to, but they attached to some innocuous thing that I said in passing that I was like, oh, that's what stuck. That's so interesting. Like, it's so interesting what is sticky. And when you said like, you can do this, like something about it was like, I just borrowed your presence and your belief for a second until like, sometimes we just need like a stopgap. God. And, and someone's voice then comes in your head when the volume of your own confidence like turns down a little or gets muted for some reason, or the same way that like old school TVs didn't used to work and you'd bang the side of them. You know, yep. it's like, sometimes you just need someone to come along and say the things that you already know, but like hearing it in someone else's voice and the way that they're saying it, you can take it in. Oh, you know? yeah. It's so powerful to be, and for me too, when I work with, you know, wonderful coaches to be in the presence or therapists to be in the presence of someone who genuinely, and you can feel it at an energetic level that they genuinely believe in your possibility, that they're so unequivocally confident about mm -hmm. what you can do. Mm -hmm. It's so grounded and you're in that space and you can't help but be like, well, I have to believe because like here I am and they clearly, without a doubt, think that this is possible. So I guess it must be, right? I mean, it's sort of what we yeah, do for our children. Yeah, you said it so, so matter-of-factly that it was like without all my fears, it's with your objectivity, right? Which is the gift of the I'm coach like, or therapist. Yeah, yeah, so like, obviously you can obviously, do it, right? You're like, <laughs> obviously you can do this. Like you could, you could so I'm easily so do this. And I'm like, oh, did. okay. And I'm so glad you I did. Can. It's such a brilliant book. It's so insightful. It's such a new take on this. I truly, for those of you that haven't read it, Run, Don't Walk, it's so good. The Perfectionist Guide to Losing Control. It's just wonderful. It pulls apart perfectionism in a way that no, I don't think anyone has. I've never read anything like this. I thought it was really profound and helpful. And I love the lens of oh my goodness, let's stop pathologizing everything and just recognize that this is just normal human behavior that has its assets and its liabilities. And let's look at it square in the face and stop criticizing ourselves. But actually that recognition of perfectionism is not the problem. It's how do you handle it? How are you managing it? Are you punishing yourself? Like it's the after, you know, it's kind of like, what's the wake that you leave in your own life with it? Yeah. And like, where do you need support? And how, how can you get that support? And it's like, 
to go back to the talking to you example, it's like, okay, now I feel confident enough to reach out to agents. Then I need a tactical support to do this. Or maybe you need financial support. Like something I talk about in my book is like, why we don't ask for help is because sometimes help can just feel like this huge, big thing that we don't even know. It's like, I identify different types of help because it's like, sometimes you just need informational help. You need to understand what is the address to file the thing, to file the permit to whatever. Exactly. Sometimes you need emotional help. Sometimes you need, sometimes you need that. So the book has eight different tools and 10 different mindsets to just help you click into like your own expertise about who you are, what you need, what you want, and how to get all of those things. So it's a book about perfectionism, but really it's a book about what do you want and how do you get it? Like, what do you really want? Not just like, what do you think you're supposed to want? Yeah. But like, how do you feel good in pursuit of that thing? So I'm excited for people to read it. And thank you so much for Yeah, it's a book that gives people permission to go for it. That's how I read it. This is giving everyone permission to be themselves, to go for it, to allow themselves to be ambitious, and then addresses where the pitfalls might be, where some of the issues may lie if we kind of veer too far on one side. But ultimately, I was like, oh, this is such a wonderful boost of a message. Mm, Thank you. I loved writing it. I'm so glad it's out in the world. So it's The Perfectionist's Guide to Losing Control, A Path to Peace and Power. My editor came up with that subtitle. I love it because it's not like, here's how to be happy, <laughs> you know, which is, it's like, here's how to be peaceful and be in your power, which isn't always going to feel light, bright, happy, cheerful. Totally. And it's available everywhere you get books. And I also did the Audible for it myself. So you could get it on Audible too. Hold on. You had to tell everybody what, like this big award that you just won or that it got selected for something very prestigious. Oh, well, it got chosen as an Amazon, one of Amazon's best books of 2023. And that was really a delight. And it's gotten, you know, it's gotten a lot of attention, which is really wonderful because it's a book for someone who really is a high level thinker who wants to engage this material deeply. Like I wrote it against a more commercial appeal of being like the beach read with the 10 tips. Like that's not what this book is. This book is like a real invitation to heal Mm -hmm. and takes a minute to sit with it. And so the fact that it's being received so well on a commercial level is just such a delight for me. Yeah. That's so awesome. I'm so excited for you. It's so fun to see it going from its little seed to its actual, you know, to seeing this fruit. Having seen that whole arc has been such a treat for me. Oh, well, thank Love you it. for being a um, stand post of help for me in this many years long process. And, oh, and for everyone so who's helped me, like I just got so much help, but I also got that help because I asked for it. Well, and and I want to just say it for all of you guys, you know, we, what it was like 2016 or 17, literally that a while ago, our conversation back then, we could Mm -hmm. never have imagined this moment right here. And I always think about this whenever going after a dream or people are concerned and holding back. I'm like, you don't even know what's possible. You don't even know what delights. You don't even know what you're missing because I could have never predicted this. And it's so exciting. Yeah. Right? Like here I know, we are. Like it really happens. Really, yeah. yeah. I have a podcast. Just, you wrote a book and here we are talking about it. It's so wild and awesome. And there was so. a little bit of a pandemic in the mix yeah, there. Yeah. <laughs> just sprinkle a little. But yet, here we are. We made it. We made it Sprinkle a little Thank crisis God. in the middle, you know, no problem. But it's so lovely to have you here. And thank you so much for sharing all Thank of your Thank you wisdom. for it's having me. I know 
this is such a hard one platform and, and anytime anyone ever invites me on, it's always such an honor and a thrill. And, and this in particular is such for me because this is such a full circle moment. So thank you so much, Sasha. Awesome. All right, everybody, your lab work is to go get her book. The link is in the show notes and run, don't walk together. For more dirt on today's topic, make sure to visit the episode show notes at drsashahines.com. Or if you have any specific questions, you can shoot me an email at hello at thechangelabpodcast.com or find me on Instagram at drsashahines. If you're enjoying The Change Lab, there are three things you can do about it. Subscribe and leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share the show with a friend or five. Or head over to drsashahines.com to check out the ways you can work with me and dive deeper into this work. And if you're feeling wild, maybe do all three. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next Monday.